Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Walking all the day Near tall towers where falcons build their nests Silver-winged they fly They know the call of freedom in their breasts Saw black head against the sky That's the way to start the uh, St. Patrick's Day edition of Political Rewind, the Dubliner singing song for Ireland. It's a song that uh, I think was written and first uh, uh, produced in around in the 1980s. It became something of an anthem for many uh, Irish people, um, although it was written by two Englishmen, which is interesting. And and it, it speaks to the beauty of Ireland but also speaks to the uh, tragic undercurrent uh, that has been part of the history of the country for so long. I, I'm going to, in case you couldn't really hear the lyrics, just the first stanza. Walking all the day near tall towers where falcons build their nests, silver-winged they fly. They know the call of freedom in their breasts, saw blackhead against the sky where twisted rocks They run to the sea, living on your western shore, saw summer sunsets, asked for more. I stood by your Atlantic sea and sang a song for Ireland. We're going to sing a song for Ireland uh, today with our special guest. And I'm going to introduce him in a moment, but but just a little bit of a preamble. Um, At the end of 1995, President Clinton Uh, went to to Ireland. His administration was already engaged in trying to establish peace in Northern Ireland between the warring factions. Um, He was in Belfast, and then he came to Dublin. And on December 1st, in front of a huge crowd in an outdoor setting, uh, he gave a speech in which he reminded the crowd that much of the world knew Ireland through the work of her great writers and musical artists, but then he also spoke of the tragedy that led to the mass Irish immigration uh, to the United States. Let's listen to just a moment of what he said. 150 years ago, the crops of this gorgeous island turned black in the ground, and one-fourth of your people either starved from the hunger or were lost to immigration. That famine was the greatest tragedy in Irish history. But out of that horrible curse came the most bittersweet of blessings, the arrival in my country of millions of new Americans who built the United States and climbed to the top of its best works. For every person here in Ireland today, 12 more in the United States have proud roots in Irish soil. Perhaps the memory of the famine explains in part the extraordinary generosity of the Irish people. And that is uh, a good template for our show today. We'll talk about the troubles, uh, and we'll talk about the great beauty that uh, came out of it as well. Our special guest is Geraldine Higgins. She's the head of the Irish Studies Program at Emory University, um, she has uh, got a specialty in 20th century Irish literature and uh, culture. And Geraldine, I think, and you'll correct me if I don't say this properly, you really deal with those uh, diametrically opposed notions. Um, you talk about how tragedy and violence can lead to great art, which is certainly uh, the case in Ireland. Um, you have written extensively about W.B. Yeats about Seamus Heaney, whose collection 
he collect, he gave his papers to Emory University, which is one of the great repositories in the United States of the works of Irish uh, writers. So thank you so much for being with us today, Geraldine. I'm delighted to be here, Bill. <clears throat> Thanks for inviting me. We're joined also today by our favorite Irish editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, Kevin O'Reilly. Kevin, your roots go back, I think, to Northern Ireland. Your ancestors are from there. And uh, so this is a special day for you too, right? Right. And I suppose uh, since uh, it's our Thursday uh, teaming up together, we should say to Geraldine, 100,000 welcomes to the show today. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, 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 men we mentioned on the show yesterday that you were taking Galloway's place. He did the show yesterday because uh, we couldn't have a Scotsman on the St. Patrick's Day show. So we're, we're, well, we're very we glad all, you're... We all get along. We all get along better now, but there's no reason to invite uh, any more trouble between us all. <laughs> That's right. Um, we're we're going to talk about the Irish in Georgia at some point in this show. We should say that uh, the last time there was a real count, uh, it turned out there were about 800,000 Irish in uh, the state, living in the state of Georgia, people of Irish uh, ancestry. And, um, of course, St. Patrick's Day today kicks off the second largest St. Patrick's Day parade in the United States. And, in fact, Irish came to Georgia even as uh, Oglethorpe was founding the colony back in 1733. So that's part of our conversation today as well. But, but Geraldine, I'd love to start, if I may, on a, a personal note. You grew up in Northern Ireland, and you grew up uh, in the midst of the Troubles. Um, I think it's important, you know, people may not know exactly what we mean when we talk about the Troubles. So just say a few things about that and about your experiences as a child growing up amidst them. Uh, sure. Um, first of all, Gurumila uh, Mayaga, Kevin, for the the welcome, and to you too, Bill. Um, I think your introduction gives us a great way of uh, thinking about this kind of contrast. There's an old Irish proverb that the Irish had uh, sad songs and happy wars, and <laughs> there's a long history of those uh, those two strains of, um, I suppose, conflict and, and creativity. Um, but uh, yes, I did uh, grow up in the north in uh, Ballymena, which is is a small town uh, 30 miles from Belfast and um, it's a very much a unionist stronghold um, and I belong to the minority Catholic uh, population so it was um, both um, a perfectly you know normal and lovely place to grow up and also only later in hindsight do you see what was so abnormal about growing up during um during the the, the conflict which was as you say um began as a uh, demand for civil rights um on the behalf of the catholic population um at the end of the 60s and they were very much influenced by martin luther king jr and the demand for civil rights here in the u.s um, and then that uh, very quickly uh, broke down and the British Army uh, set, were sent in to supposedly keep the peace, but very quickly uh, it broke down into um, a, a much more bitter civil conflict um, that lasted for 30 years. Um, so that that um, it, it meant that really, you know, as I said, we are we were able to kind of uh, grow up around it. In some ways, the troubles uh, for me, for my family, was mediated through the television and through the radio. Um, um, but it was also ever present. Um, we weren't in Belfast or Derry or any of the major centres. Um, but you know, there was a police barricade at the top of the road. We we passed every day to school. We all got used to being searched going into shops. Um, you know, there would be bomb scares. And, um, you know, I suppose it's really, as I said, um, there is a real legacy of what it was like to live through that. Um, but we're fortunately coming up to the 
25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which brought an end to uh, the troubles um, in the North. And in fact, your clip of President Clinton reminds me of um, uh, one of the most popular shows to come out of Ireland recently. And we were talking about this earlier, uh, the show Derry Girls, which um, ends with the, the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement. And I often ask my students what they know about Ireland and Derry Girls is um, top of the list in terms of um, uh, <laughs> how people are experiencing, uh, particularly the North and the conflict. It's probably the first um, amazing, successful comedy about the troubles in the North of Ireland. So, um, yeah, big shout out to Lisa McGee and Derry Girls. <laughs> I, I think the anniversary of uh, the Good Friday Agreement is April 10th. Uh, That's right. Uh, so it is coming up uh, quite soon. Kevin, you know, it's one of the things that Geraldine said that's so fascinating is that uh, the Catholics in Northern Ireland who were fighting for their uh, rights, um, uh, they did take from Martin Luther King Jr. And um, We Shall Overcome became one of the anthems of uh, the movement, which is really fascinating, Kevin. Yeah, and you know, as you as you learn about as you learn about Irish history, which is um, complex and difficult to understand, it's it, it really does demand a lot of Americans who'd like to understand Ireland to spend the time to to appreciate how complicated and difficult it was, um, and you know how how lengthy the history is, you know. Um, but uh, there has always been this connection to the American view of of civil rights and uh, for example frederick Douglass, you know visited ireland and and is known in some ways better known in ireland among people who study history than he is here for what he stood for and why he stood for it um so let's do this uh let's talk geraldine and kevin uh about this notion that out of great difficulties comes great art uh First of all, Geraldine, let's make the point that, and I'm not, I, I would love, maybe you have a thought about why this is the case. Um, you know, I've told you I'm a great lover of Irish writers. Some of the greatest writers in the world are Irish, come out of Ireland, one of the smallest, what is Ireland is like the size of Indiana, and yet we could spend most of this program just listing all of the great writers who came out of Ireland. What is it, aside from the troubles, aside from the wars, that what's in the soil that produced so many astonishingly uh, beautiful writers? <laughs> That's a good question. Something in the water or maybe in the Ishka Breta, the, the whiskey. <laughs> but the, um, I'm not sure, but I, I've heard Ireland described as the um, world's smallest cultural superpower. And um, that, that you're right, it is a small country that produces, um, has produced its, its fair share of, of writers. We have four uh, Nobel literature um, writers from Ireland and any, any taxi driver in Dublin would be happy to quiz you about that if you jump in a cab and they, it's uh, something we're very proud of. Um, I don't know, I do think there is some, some connection between the history of conflict and the history of art. There is a sense in which both um, our two poet Nobel laureates, W.B. Yeats and Seamus Heaney, um, are both in writing in times of great um, violence and are um, struggling with the issue of what should the artist's response be to that? What is the responsibility of the artist to their community and to the times that they live in? And I think both of them produced ex extraordinary works of art out of that, um, out of that dilemma. Kevin, I can't help but wonder, look, you're a journalist, you've been a journalist your entire career, so a heritage of writing <laughs> comes along with your uh, Irish past. Well, yes, and you know, I uh, was very fortunate uh, as a senior in college at the University of Dayton, my academic advisor uh, made me take a class, an entire seminar, along with only three other students about Yeats. Uh, I later found out that he did his dissertation on Yeats. Uh, he was an Irishman himself from Rhode Island. And so early on, I got exposed to <clears throat> Yeats, who was in, another incredibly complex person to understand. And to me, the amazing things, and, and, and Geraldine made reference to this, is that 
in the midst of you know this the 1916 uprising the irish uh, republic trying to emerge with its independence yeats a poet was a figure of national and historical political importance i mean a poet was speaking for the people in a way that mattered greatly and that is when you step back that's an amazing thing uh and played a role in in the reason that the country became independent i think geraldine we are going to talk about both wb yates and seamus heaney today because they happen to be two of the greatest uh, writers uh, in the country, but but also because they're they're uh, in your area of expertise. Um, Yeats was, as Kevin says, a complicated figure. He he he. Um, tell me if I've got this right. I mean, among other things, W. B. Yeats was part of this group of mystical thinkers. Lady Gregory, I think, was his mentor, right? And she believed in. All sorts of uh, of concepts of mysticism. Yeats, probably his most famous poem, I think, was the Second Coming, which actually speaks to this uh, belief that every millennium uh, we go from a benevolent uh, leader like a Jesus to then um, a, a malevolent force. And in the Second Coming, he basically writes about that. You know, we've lived through a millennium of, of, of the benevolence of a Jesus Christ, and now, as he says in the end of that poem so chillingly, what rough beast slouch its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Tell us more about Yeats. Um, sure, and um, thank you for quoting his most um, his most quoted poem. In fact, is the second coming. I've done some work on um, uh, journalists and politicians who who quote Yeats, and um, that poem tops the polls. But close behind is the Easter nineteen sixteen, which um, which Kevin referenced, and it's true. It's extraordinary mm. that a poem should become so um, uh, uh, connected to an event to to the extent that I suppose those of us who are literature scholars would say it's almost as famous as the rising itself, although I know historians would disagree. <laughs> but um, certainly the poem has a really interesting history. Um, Yeats wrote it in 1916 in response to the rising, but didn't publish it for four years. Um, and it circulated in a, in a small uh, 25 um, copies of a pamphlet that circulated. In fact, we have one of those in the Rose Library at Emory. So it's a it's a really interesting document to look at. Um, but he wrote the poem um, while he was staying in France with Maud Gon, the great love of his life, whose um, mm -hmm. husband, John McBride, had just been <laughs> executed uh, by the British um, after the Easter Rising. And Yeats took the opportunity to propose again uh, to Maud Gone and was turned down. Um, and then he returned to um, Ireland to uh, Cool Park to Lady Gregory and uh, finished the poem. So those two women are kind of in the background of this great poem. And uh, in fact, one of the things I love to show to students is a letter from Maud Gone to Yeats, which says, uh, my dear Willie, no, I don't like your poem. It isn't worthy of you and it isn't worthy of the subject. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> <there's a> real... <laughs> All I can say is there's a good thing that it wasn't social media or maybe Yeats would have given up. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but she was very much the minority. The poem, of course, has just uh, become such a uh, an important part of the history um, of the rising and of Yeats's sense of his bardic duty to remember those who died and to um, uh, commemorate the event, however ambiguously he felt about it. Uh, Maud Gaughan was an Irish nationalist, just as W.B. Yeats was. Um, tell us what Easter 1916, we're going to listen to just a little of it in a moment, but tell us uh, what the uh, uprising was about in 1916. Right, so it was a very small group of Irish volunteers um, um, who led the rising, and um, they... Uh, took the view that England's difficulty was Ireland's opportunity. Um, um, England was fighting, of course, in the First World War, and they decided that this was the opportunity to um, uh, to stage an uprising. Um, and of course, they chose Easter for all of its symbolic and religious connotations of um, renewal and rebirth. Um, um, and a small number of them marched out. Um, of course, it was 
there was a conflict even in the in the day that it was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen on Easter Sunday. Uh, the guns that they were expecting to come in um, with Roger Casement were discovered. So the rising was called off. There was a countermanding order. And so even an even smaller group went out on Easter Monday uh, to uh, occupy key buildings across Dublin, most prominently the GPO, the General Post Office in the centre of Dublin. They held out for almost a week um, until the British uh, forces arrived and they uh, were forced to surrender at the end of that week. So it was always a military failure. It had never any chance of success. Um, and in fact, most of the population were against it because many of them had husbands, sons, brothers fighting in the First World War on the British side. Um, but in fact, what happened next was really crucial. The uh, British Army um, uh, again, in the middle of the war, um, were very fearful of what it meant for Ireland to rebel. And so they uh, tried and executed the leaders of the Rising um, very quickly in the, in the next two weeks. And that really turned the public opinion um, in favour of the rebels. And um, it really sort of began this the war of independence, which then led to um, uh, Irish independence in 1923. So um, it, it, Easter 1916, as you point out, one of Yeats's most famous poems. Um, we're going to listen to a bit of the poem read by Liam Neeson. Uh, the first stanza of the poem, which we're not going to hear, it, it, it's all told in the first person. And in the first stanza, and you'll correct me if I don't have this quite right, of course, um, but the first stanza is Yeats walking through town and imagining that he is seeing the faces and passing uh, the people who died, who were killed uh, in the rebellion, um, as if they are ghosts. And, and in that stanza, he... He is even a little bit cynical and sarcastic about them. He says he's going to go to the club later and joke about uh, these people. Um, uh, but then he says uh, the words that we'll hear in the second stanza, which we are going to listen to, where he talks about actual women, who, uh, people who were killed. Um, and the line that becomes so important is, all changed, changed utterly because of these uh, deaths. A terrible beauty is born. So let's listen to um, Neeson reading those words from Yeats, talking about people who did die that day. Him and the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly a terrible beauty is born so that's just a very short uh, bit as he talks about one of the uh, people who was involved in that and and uh, Kevin uh, and Geraldine that line a terrible beauty is born is so incredibly uh, powerful and it's in keeping with Yates uh, again you know, what rough beast slouches toward Bethlehem uh, to be born? Uh, Kevin, the beauty that he speaks of is, is has a violence to it. it, it absolutely. And it's, um, I mean, it is demanding to understand. It is him uh, seeing things that, that within a, you know, a complicated and troubled world. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, again, for us in the United States, it's, you know, it's always been interesting to me to see, because when we think about the revolution that gave birth to our country, we see a, we're, we're told, we told, tell a story of a methodical, determined military victory that went on for several years and all that. And as Geraldine has pointed out, the, the military part of the attempt to, uh, on Easter, the, the rising was a disaster. I mean, it was it was a, a total abject failure, and the Irish were rebelling, as she pointed out, in the middle of World War One. And people don't realize that things were so so bad that Ireland remained neutral in that war, technically neutral. And it was really the emotion in the aftermath and the and the um, and the horrible treatment of people in Ireland that gave birth to to the country, you know, to, to its freedom. Um, one of the most powerful experiences I had when 
we took a family vacation to Ireland as we went to the prison where those from the uh, Easter Rising were executed. We literally walked through the courtyard where they were stood up against a wall and shot. And it, it is still there and you can feel it. You can actually walk into the cells in which they were kept before they were shot. So what you have a sense of is it was less a military effort and more an overwhelmingly emotional winning over of the people, I think is another a better way to understand that that birth of that nation. So Geraldine, before we take a break, I think it's important to point out you know, we're going to talk in a little while uh, about the troubles and um, uh, about the peace agreement that was finally signed in 1998. But you've got essentially two different kinds of rebellions, right? Um, two, two different kinds of rebellion in Yates's time and then in the contemporary time. Yes, very much so. Um, I, I mean, there are parallels, but they are they are very different. Um, but I think, as Kevin said, the, the the long memory of the Easter Rising has been really um, extraordinary in Irish history. The um, 2016 centenary, I was lucky enough to be living in Ireland um, for that year. And it was just an, a, a really amazing um, year of um, looking back at that moment and seeing what it meant for contemporary Ireland and um, uh, the, the president um, and the government set up a decade of centenaries to um, look at Irish history 100 years later and reassess it and see what it meant. Um, and of course, the troubles, the um, uh, it, which is 50 years, um, it, the, the, the troubles is really um, uh, complicates that because there's a, a real sort of sense in which um, Ireland doesn't want to um, uh, assert a kind of parallelism between the two events um, and that but nonetheless there are um, ways in which this kind of sense of unfinished business has remained part of the story of the north of Ireland, that six counties still remain um, in uh, British hands. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's both a kind of uh, nationalist romantic idea about that and also a very troubling uh, um, measure of, of violence and uh, a legacy that's, that's very, very hard to uh, live with and hard to shake off. All right, um, let's do this. Let's get to our first break. We have a lot more to talk about. I'm really looking forward to um, hearing Geraldine talk about Seamus Heaney, who in many ways the greatest contemporary poet, not just in Ireland, but one of the greatest in the world, who she has dealt with. Um, and so we're going to hear her stories about him and how he fits in to this theme of how difficult times can lead to great, if not terrible, Beauty. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. This is a special St. Patrick's Day edition of Political Rewind. We're joined by the head of the Irish Studies Program at Emory University, which has a great repository of Irish writers, W.B. Yeats, uh, Seamus Heaney, uh, Geraldine Higgins uh, has the wonderful uh, job of being able to dip into those and to and to contribute her own uh, work about those great writers, among many others. And Kevin Riley is with us as well today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so let's move on. Tell it first of all. How did Emory University end up at the as the repository? Geraldine, of the works of Seamus Heaney. 
Um, well, it's a it's a long story, but the the short version is it's all to do with um, friendships and um, uh, Seamus Heaney, um, uh, or sorry, yeah, Richard Elman, who is the great was a great scholar of Irish literature, uh, wrote the biography of James Joyce. Oscar Wilde also wrote the first biography of Yeats, and he came to Emory as a scholar. Um, and he was the first Woodruff scholar at Emory, and he encouraged the library to collect um, uh, materials of the writers he was interested in. And they began uh, to look into the papers of Yeats and Lady Gregory and so on. And uh, when Richard Elman fell ill, um, his friend here, uh, Professor Ron Shuhard, um, and the then president, uh, Laney, went to Elman and said, we'd like to set up a lecture series in your um for, for all that you've done for emory and he, they said who would you like to give the first one and the, he said seamus and so they asked seamus he needed to give the first Elman lecture in 1988 and as he was leaving he handed over the papers the notes from his lecture and said would you like those for the library and that began this um <laughs> amazing investment in living Irish writers. Up until that point, there hadn't really been much of a um, uh, a push to collect living writers. Um, the idea is you have to wait about 50 years before you know whether a writer is going to be worth um, uh, <laughs> their reputation is going to remain. Um, but Emory in some ways became this kind of um, futures market for um, Irish poets and they began to collect their papers. And we now have one of the best um, repositories of Irish poetry outside of Ireland and um, it's just been an, a joy to be here and work um, on the papers and to work with the poets because of course the best thing about it is that these poets come through and give readings and meet with classes and talk to students and it's just such an extraordinary um, living um, archive for them. How much of that is accessible to oh say people like Kevin Riley and me to the public? All of it. Everything that's accessible to students is accessible to the public. You just need to make an appointment at the Rose Library and they will bring the boxes to your desk. And oh. um, it makes, some of the material is restricted, but not very much. Um, it's a, you know, a few things are restricted um, for letters of people who are still living, etc. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity to come and uh, see what we have here and, um, and dive in. <laughs> You know, I have had a chance to go over to that library uh, in, in my occasion to, to see some of Ralph McGill's papers, the famous uh, editor of the Atlanta Constitution. And it is a, a very powerful experience to see people, you know, their own notes, their own writing, their own revisions, their own struggles with their work. Uh, and the reminder that it, uh, a person becomes great as a writer or a poet because they work so hard at it. You know, we get this idea that they were just born with this gift, and certainly they have a gift. But I would suspect that in your work, Geraldine, you have found that Seamus Haney was a very hard worker and really uh, revised his poems over and over again and was probably never quite satisfied with them either. That's right. I think that's a real, um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful thing for students to see. And one of the things about our archives too is that they're open to undergraduates, not just to graduates and scholars. So we have many classes up in the libraries and one of the things they love to see is that process of what happens from draft to draft. Um, I mean, one of the things that I find when I was working in the Heaney archives in the National Library of Ireland, his famous poem, Bogland, and he has this line, the trees um, as soft as pulp. But before he landed on the word pulp, he had said trees soft as bananas. <laughs> So it, <laughs> he changes, changes that word. So um, it's just great to see this, uh, to see that that as you say, the the labour involved, and uh, you know, as you know, um, the idea of work and um, the dignity of work is something that's really important to Heaney, as it is in his first poem, and um, the poem that kind of remained. Uh, his uh, manifesto, uh, digging, is is all about that. Is all about this uh, the idea of the labor of the writer and the labor of the of the farmer. Uh, by the way, uh, that leads us to uh, mention something about the Irish in Georgia, Kevin. When when the Irish did arrive here, and we know that uh, the wave different waves of immigration from Ireland, uh, the people who came over were often they were marginalized. They were the subject of bigotry. Uh, they uh, had a hard time finding 
uh, uh, reasonable work. And, and even as far back as the Oglethorpe colony, um, they were initially put to work as, as laborers building the canals for very little money. In fact, at one point, there was a rebellion among the Irish workers uh, who said they were uh, not being paid properly. They were not only being underpaid, they sometimes weren't paid at all. And, you know, and that's part of the story of the Irish that is a blot on this country, um, the way in which those waves of Irish, especially at the turn of the 20th century, uh, where the Irish arrived in New York and uh, were treated with great disdain and uh, found themselves to be outcasts in many ways. Well, sure. I mean, as you, as in the, you know, early in the show, when 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 we listened to to that speech by, from President Clinton, the Irish have been leaving Ireland, where life was very hard at times and unbearable. Uh, and then to find themselves in other places and not just the United States where life could be uh, just as hard and uh, maybe slightly more bearable as they made their way. Um, and again, uh, it, it, there is, as there have been so generations of immigrants of, from all over the world come to the United States and fulfill that difficult uh, and um, you know essential work with their hands and bodies, as, as, as Geraldine said, the dignity of work that we owe so much to uh, that has built this country and can be and can be forgotten. Not, I mean, the Irish played a big role, but so did so many other people who've come here. Oh, certainly, certainly. But today's St. Patrick's Day, so we're talking about the Irish <laughs> specifically. Uh, Geraldine, <laughs> could we talk about, you, you sort of, we can sort of bracket uh, the uh, the crises uh, in Ireland between WB Yeats and the Easter Rebellion in 1916 with uh, Bloody uh, Sunday in 1973 and the poem that Seamus Heaney wrote uh, as a response to that. So what happened in uh, 19, I guess it was June 30th, 1972, actually, uh, that Bloody Sunday took place. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it was actually January January thirtieth, nineteen seventy two. Um, yeah, uh, it was fifty <clears throat> years ago last year, um, and it was a, again connected to the civil rights. It was a civil rights uh, march um, that was a protest against internment without trial. Internment without trial um, had been introduced um, uh, as an extreme measure uh, by the British, and there were many marches in protest against it. This march was banned, um, but went ahead by the civil rights. Um, uh, groups um, and the British soldiers sent in the paratroopers who um, uh, at some point in the march opened fire and shot dead 13 unarmed civilians um, and uh, Seamus Heaney of course was from Derry uh, south rural Derry but went to school in the city of Derry um, but it was a shocking event because it was also filmed and televised all over the world um, and almost more, well, not more, but as important um, as the act itself was the the British report, the Widgery report um, into the killings, which exonerated all of the British soldiers um, and claimed that the um, marchers had been uh, carrying weapons. And it took um, almost 40 years for another uh, report to be um, agreed upon and commissioned Savile report, which eventually um, exonerated all of the uh, victims. Um, and uh, the British Prime Minister of the time, David Cameron, issued an apology um, for Bloody Sunday. But it was an extraordinary, um, a terrible event, and it was a real turning point in the troubles. It meant that many, many nationalists who had had no um, um, uh, intention of you know, joining the IRA or of supporting their aims. Um, flocked to 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 take part after that it, it was a real turning point for um for the north and for all of um ireland really um and so Seamus Heaney wrote a, a poem that was a song that didn't get sung didn't get published but um also in response to the widgery report uh brian freel um, his friend and fellow Derry, um, uh, Derry man wrote a play called The Freedom of the City, which um, uh, uh, 
uh, was, was roughly based on the events of Bloody Sunday where three civilians get trapped in the Guildhall um, during the march and tell their stories to each other. Um, and and as, as we hear the different reports of what's going on um, from journalists and politicians and a ballad singer, and eventually they too um, are told to come out with their hands above their heads and they, they too are shot dead at the end of the play. It's a very, very powerful um, a response to, the, to those events. Um, it's it is an extraordinary play, Brian Friel's Freedom of the City. But but let's go back to uh, Heaney. Uh, much the same way that WB eight wrote Easter nineteen sixteen to memorialize some of those who were killed then. Um, Heaney uh, wrote about the um, funerals coming at uh, the road to Derry is his traveling to Derry for the funerals of those killed. We're going to listen to him read the entire poem. It's not terribly long, um, but it's a very powerful poem in which he comments on the dead. Here we go. Along Glen Sheen and Four Glen and the cold woods of Hillhead, a wet wind in the hedges and a dark cloud on the mountain, and flags like black frost mourning that the 13 men were dead. The roe wept at Dungiven and the foil cried out to heaven. Burnt Tullet's old wound opened, and again the bogside bled. By Shipkey Gate I shivered, and by Lone Moor I inquired, where I might find the coffins where the thirteen men lay dead. My heart besieged by anger, my mind a gap of danger. I walked among their old haunts, the home ground where they bled. And in the dirt lay justice like an acorn in the winter, till its oak would sprout in Derry where the thirteen men lay dead. Kevin, an incredibly powerful poem, uh, memorializing those killed. It, it really is unbelievable um, and uh, powerful to watch him and listen to him <laughs> capture in just a very few lines something so monumental, you know. And, you know, I, I have to mention this too. I mean, um, that incident has been was so tragic and then so, as we spoke at the beginning, so uh, fertile for Irish artists. Um, I mean, you too, the the band, which is as big a band as there is in the world, you know, one of their biggest hits was Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And it is, it is largely about the same incident. Uh, and they find the same way to talk about it that is very compelling. All right, N- Natalie, I got to get to a break. But while I do, I think you have there in the show folder, you two singing Sunday, Bloody Sunday. The way we could cue that up and play a little bit of it before we, as we head to the break or not. Natalie says no. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, uh, can let's I just do say this. That- can I just say, Bill, that, that that wasn't Heaney reading the poem. I just want to say that wasn't his voice. Um, so I, I don't know who it was, but I just wanted to to, to, to clarify that because I know we might hear him later on and I don't want people to, oh. to think I don't know who it was. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, I am so, I am so sorry. Thank you for the correction. And uh, this no, no, just no, proves it's, it's, that it is his, you're, it is you're the scholar. Yeah, you're the scholar. <laughs> I'm just a guy who talks for a living. <laughs> Let's get to a break. Back, back, back with more in a minute. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you out there. Uh, Kevin Riley, uh, while we're talking about uh, the Troubles uh, and uh, uh, 1970, the 1970s and beyond, uh, I think we should give a recommendation to our listeners. You and I both read an extraordinarily powerful book published um, back in 2018, I think, called Say Nothing by Patrick Keefe, which tells in great detail 
uh, about the in- incarceration, the internment of uh, members of the IRA. Um, it's a very powerful book that you both, we both read it, right, Kevin? Right. And I've recommended it to a lot of friends because, it, you know, the troubles are incredibly complicated to understand, as, as Geraldine, I think, tried to make clear. But that book helps you see it at a very personal level. And, 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 and it really lets you develop an understanding of just how difficult, troubling, complicated, and difficult to resolve the issues were. Yeah, completely. Um, Geraldine, when did Seamus Heaney die? Seamus Heaney died mm. 10 years ago this year, uh, August 2013. Um, so this is the 10th anniversary of his death. And uh, he was such a beloved uh, figure. You know, um, obviously, as you, as you say, he was extremely well known as a poet across the world. But he was also a really important public figure in Ireland. And um, he was someone that um, people turned to and knew. And, you know, he couldn't walk down the street without people stopping him to chat and shake his hand and um, ask him to sign books and all of those things. So he um, uh, was someone that I think Irish people really looked up to. And I think that was also part of his you know, 50 year, years in the public eye as um, in some ways our national poet, a poet who represented for many people the conscience of um, of the north of Ireland. All right, Geraldine, I, I don't want to disappoint you and our listeners, but um, one of the poems that uh, you said you love of, of Seamus Heaney is While All the Others Were Away at Mass. And um, unfortunately... We don't have that in a in a place where we can play it where it was read by Heaney. So if you'll live with me, I would like to read this poem. And one of the reasons it's so important is it tells us a lot about, about family in Ireland, about the Irish love of family. Kevin, you certainly understand that. But also Heaney's extraordinary love for his parents, his mother particularly. So I am going to do my best. Seamus Heaney's When All the Others uh, Were Away at Mass. When all the others were away at Mass, I was all hers as we peeled potatoes. They broke the silence, let fall one by one, like solder weeping off the soldering iron. Cold comfort set between us, things to share, gleaming in a bucket of clean water, and again let fall, little pleasant splashes from each other's work would bring us to our senses, So while the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding and some crying, I remembered her head bent toward my head, her breath in mine, our fluent dipping knives, never closer, the whole rest of our lives. What an extraordinary tribute to his mother, uh, Geraldine. A totally beautiful poem, and in fact, the um, there was a, an RTE um, uh, poll to uh, in Ireland in 2015 where they asked um, everyone to send in a vote for their favourite poem of the last 100 years, and they whittled it down to a short list of 10 poems, mm. um, and then everyone voted, and that poem was voted the number one favourite poem in Ireland, best love poem in Ireland, and it meant so much to everyone because, as you say, it, it's universal, it, it speaks to to that and uh, relationship and and also the honesty of that moment of they were close then but never closer the whole rest of their lives it's it's just a beautiful beautiful tribute he tells us kevin they didn't have to speak they didn't have to speak the closeness in the silence was so beautiful for them and kevin well, you and me- your family you talk about your father particularly your parents with that kind of love well, you know, I, I sometimes feel as if I'm almost a stereotypically American Irishman because my father, <laughs> I'm one of six children, uh, Catholic family. My father was a police officer, so it's almost like something out of a movie. And his children, the children were named Sean, Kevin, Timothy, James, Mary <laughs> Therese, and Terrence. <laughs> <laughs> um Geraldine, we shouldn't let the rest of the show go by without mentioning playwrights. We've already talked about Brian Friel, the great playwright who you have a lot of expertise in. Um, uh, We should also talk, I mean, there's George Bernard Shaw. He was not a slouch. 
Uh, and there was also a little bit more contemporaneously, Sean O'Casey, whose plays mm-hmm. debuted at the Abbey Theater and who what I think of as being really fascinating because he wrote about what he saw in the day-to-day life of the poor Irish. And when his plays premiered at the Abbey Theater, um, they the audience, in some cases, in some of the plays, rose up and attacked the stage because they were so offended by the way he was portraying their daily lives. Yes. <laughs> That's right. There was, um, uh, you know, Sean O'Casey who actually grew up in the tenements, um, you know, not very far from the Abbey Theatre, but um, there, that, that life had not been shown on the stage. Um, and uh, his great champion, in fact, was Lady Gregory, who told him he had a great gift for characterization and uh, um, kind of encouraged him. Yeats was a little more um, circumspect initially, but of course they were huge successes, the the O'Casey plays, until Plough in the Stars, which premiered in 1926. And it was, of course, the 10th anniversary of the Easter Rising and Plough in the Stars is, um, you know, really takes to task this whole idea of romantic nationalism and um, uh, shows the toll that it took and, uh, you know, the, the marriage between the central characters, Nora, who begs her husband not to go out and fight um and it's a it, it's a very funny play but you know ends tragically as O'Casey's all do um but he O'Casey was um a, a great um figure in the abbey theater and of course then there was a, a real breach when they refused to take one of his later plays and so he you know went off to england and his plays were never uh, performed um, again in his lifetime. So um, it was a real breach, but uh, O'Casey's a real staple of the Abbey now, and um, they did a great plough in the stars for the centenary of the Easter Rising as well. So, and of course, we have some great playwrights coming up um, today, you know, we have Marina Carr and Connor McPherson and, uh, you know, lots hmm. of lots of uh, playwrights who are, um, uh, you know, looking at contemporary issues and also going back into that great rich um, past of, um, of uh, the Irish dramatic history. Connor, Connor McPherson wrote, wrote, has written some of the most chilling plays that I have seen, as has Martin McDonough, uh, another one of the contemporaries, who now has made his mark in Hollywood more than in the uh, New York and Irish uh, theater. I'm sorry to say we are completely out of time uh, for this edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Geraldine Higgins, it was such a joy to have you with us today on this St. Patrick's Day. And happy St. Patrick's Day to you, Geraldine. And Kevin, (laughs) you know I was happy to have you here as well. So thank you both very much for being here for today's Political Rewind. We're going to uh, be back again with a... We'll be back again with another show on Monday. I hope you all have a great weekend. In the meantime, everybody, take care, stay Healthy, here's Mary Black singing once again, Song for Ireland. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>